it's me again, your dreaded interlocutor here for the Dishcast. I am thrilled to be here this week because I don't have my headphones on, which is really nice. I hate having those bloody things around my ears the same way I hated having those things around my mouth for so long. It's great to be unencumbered, Christopher. And here I am with one of my oldest friends and intellectual heroes. He is... Christopher Caldwell, one of like two or three right of center writers that I never miss anything he writes. He's a senior fellow at Claremont Institute, at the Claremont Institute, and a contributing editor of the Claremont Review of Books. His latest book, The Age of Entitlement, is a constitutional narrative of the last half century that's really remarkable. I actually read it again last well, I didn't read the whole thing again, but I read some passages on it last week because I was thinking about affirmative action and where we are now with that kind of essential to see that within the context of the last 100 years, really, as opposed to the last 20. And it all it holds up. It's, it's, it's a really good, I mean, if you are a sort of basically reflexive liberal, I think it's particularly good for you to read the book, because you will, you will be annoyed by it. And there'll be parts of it that will really actually kind of upset you. But I just think as a as a good exercise in reading a history re, re reinterpreted and rewritten, it's a really helpful book. Christopher, I am well, thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Andrew. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I, you, know, you know, I wrote that book. I, I actually had some hopes that it would be, that it would bridge a certain misunderstanding between, you know, uh, in the way uh, liberals and conservatives were thinking about five years ago to show that, you know, I don't think the, the rise of Trump was due to, to race specifically as a lot of people on the left had it but it 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 was due to the way government worked in the civil rights era let's say so there you know i don't think the usual liberal explanation of what happened is correct but it's not totally far off either no the good thing about you, the book is that it 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 treats the alternative view with a certain amount of respect because the truth is the history is complicated and different things occur. But but what I found fascinating about the book, and we will just briefly deal with it, is is your the way in which American history kind of hinges in the mid-60s, in which we go from a classic sort of small government, limited government, really very limited government, and essentially ethnic homogeneity in a very broad sense to one of civil rights and multiracialism as a deliberate policy from the 1965 Immigration Act and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And how just those two decisions, which when you look back and you actually read the debates at the time, were not regarded as that controversial or weird. In fact, most of them were, were introduced and persuaded people by saying not, nothing much is going to happen. A huge amount was about to happen. but And I think that's the other fascinating part of the book that and, and of the story that, that you know, we're always unleashing unintended consequences. Well, thank you. I, you know, I wouldn't say that it was small government then. I mean, it was New Deal government. It was a, it was an industrial type society. So the, the government wasn't small, but it was kind of simple, and uh, it, it, it did big things. It, I mean, there's a big military industry. We we're building the highway system, but it was not a. You're right. It didn't. There were a, there were a number of aspects of of american life that were de minimis they were considered below the threshold of the federal government's attention and and after the 60s there were there were no such activities anymore 
Yeah, not just economically, but almost psychologically, the rise of the therapeutic state as well. And the, I mean, Christopher Lashes is, is is really interesting about that evolution of the individual self into different conception of the self, really, that emerges. But anyway, we digress. Last time we talked, we talked about the emerging right in Europe. We talked about what was going on in Brexit, what was going on in France in particular. We didn't touch that much on Italy, but obviously... The continent has changed since then. We have a we have a new insurgent right of center party in Italy. We have now a sort of squishy center left party in Germany. We have chaos in the United Kingdom. And we have Macron being really pushed at this point by a revolt. But behind all of this is, of course, the Russian war in Ukraine and how that has reverberated around the continent. Now, tell me, is there anything that has happened since Putin invaded in February that has truly surprised you? I, you know, yeah, I, you know, the, the little surprises are happening all the time. There, there's no, I guess, nothing major. I am surprised in Italy by the by the shape the the new government of Georgia Maloney has taken, you know, as has been much reported, you know, Georgia Maloney is a is a is a woman who's a very charismatic woman, just a dazzling or youngish, the first woman to be in a position to become, you know, Italy's prime minister, as we can call it for shorthand. She grew up in you know in the youth organizations of the Alianza Nazionale which is the was a successor party to the old Italian social movement which in turn was the was the group that kept alive the flame of Benito Mussolini and so to have a woman like that approaching power is you would expect it to just send people into paroxysms of fear but i well, there when you been... read the U.S. Yeah. elite media, yeah. including today, actually, there's, there's just a, a constant chorus of panic and terror, but not in Europe. Really. No, I haven't. I haven't noticed it, and I certainly haven't noticed it in Italy. And I, and 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 I think one of the reasons is the way Maloney has campaigned over the last, the last year. She has, you know, she's a she is a politician who cares a lot about identity. She's opposed to immigration. But it's very interesting that on two questions, the Russian invasion and the European currency, she's she's taken great pains to show herself a responsible person, if I may use that adjective, which I don't usually use outside of, you know, quotation marks, okay? <laughs> she has taken the, let's say she's taken the European Union, the Brussels side, you know, you know, to go back to the last Italian government, you had a, you know, a, a very strange situation where you had an outright majority for a two-party coalition of the, the hard populist right and the hard populist left. And that government was really popular. It was brought down by the ambition of, of Matteo Salvini, who is the most popular member of it, popular because he was blocking immigrant debarkations from the, from the Mediterranean. It looked like Italy was very, let's just say, was going wildly populist. And yet, Due to the, you know, the Italians are very good politicians. They, the, you know, in in Parliament, 
they were able to wrangle a majority for Mario Draghi. I don't know exactly how they did it, but you basically <laughs> have a situation where the the populists, the Italian equivalent of, of a coalition of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, voted for a guy who is a former investment banker at, 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 at Goldman Sachs and became the governor of the European Central Bank and is the architect of, of the entire Italian turn to corporate capitalism. And he became their technocratic prime minister. Which is and completely bizarre. It's bizarre. And, and he was leading a government of national unity. And there was only one party outside of it. And mm -hmm. that was Maloney. So you, you would expect her to really be beyond the pale. But strangely enough, because she was the entirety of the opposition, she had a kind of a, a, an institutional responsibility to stabilize the country. It's a, it's a very, one of these paradoxes of parliamentary democracy. You know, when you lead the opposition, you've got a kind of a stake in the institution. And she became quite close to Draghi. I mean, quite personally sort of intimate with, you know, with Draghi. They, 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 they enjoyed each other's company. And she started talking to him a lot. And now she has a very, she's taken pains to, to not send alarming signals to the banks. It looks like she's going to pick Giorgetti, who is the most pro-business member of the Lega to be her top economics person in the, in, in the cabinet. And she has lost no opportunity to, 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 to express her support for the NATO coalition against Vladimir Putin, which is something that you really would not have expected her to do, given the profile of her party. And it reminds me a little bit of something that, that Omar Torrijos, the former strongman of Panama, said to Manuel Antonio Noriega, which is, he said, talking about the United States, he said, you know, you can, you, he said, you can, you, you look at this beast to the United States. He said, you can rattle the chain all you, you want, but don't touch the monkey. He said, the, the, he was comparing the United States to a chained monkey, you know. And I think that that's what, that's what Maloney is, is doing. She's, she's rattling the chain a lot, but the, the monkey is the, is the euro and the, the Atlantic alliance, and she is showing that she is not a radical on those things. That's a really interesting moment, it seems to me. It, it also strikes me as an interesting parallel to what just happened in Britain, which is that you had a new right-wing conservative prime minister who decided independently, apparently, if, for reasons that will remain, well, for reasons that, as she laid out, she believes in the long run would help generate growth and increase in productivity, but which which landed with a, an amazingly large thud, not only in the political environment in the UK, but primarily in the financial markets too. In other words, that Trust basically has been forced to completely abandon her entire campaign platform for the leadership of the Tory party, is now a, a dead woman walking, I think, in terms of political future. But again, because she was not sufficiently, quote unquote, Chris Caldwell, responsible <laughs> to keep the bond markets happy, to keep the pension funds happy, in the same way that Maloney seems to bumped up against a kind of wall 
the the populists in Europe have not yet been able to break through, even with something like Brexit, which would seem to be a huge break against it. But lo and behold, a few years later, it all seems to be moving back into the same structures of European-wide responsibility. Yeah, you know, I, I with trust, I... Truss is a, a hard person to figure out because she hasn't always held this libertarian ideology, of course. I don't know if it's really conviction or whether it's whether it resembles something that her, her heroine, Margaret Thatcher, said in the late 70s, just before she ran, just before she ran for prime minister, when she when she said, you know, we must have an ideology. Labor, labor have an ideology. We must have one too. And I think that that was what that's Trump. That's Truss's libertarianism, I suppose. But I, it's sort of interesting that the person now who is being called into to, to 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 take her, you know, take her chestnuts out of the fire is 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 Jeremy Hunt, who is who really since 2016 has been, I think, the anti-Brexit community's symbol, the living symbol of what a of what a responsible anti-Brexit conservative ought to be. And the fact that he is now has now, now seems to have righted the financial ship to great adulation from the financial press indicates that other things are shortly to be brought up for renegotiation. Yeah, it 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 feels like a serious blow by the Remainers against the Leavers in the UK. And, and of course, it's quite easy to bundle up all the crises that have hit since Brexit, including COVID, which, of course, was the major interv intervener, creating massive government debt just on its own. And now we have the Russia-Ukraine war, in which, obviously, the economies of Western Europe are confronting probably the biggest price shock in 30, 40 years since the 1970s, which has also meant dramatic changes, all of which have been completely independent of the question of Brexit or independent na nationhood. What, so do you think that essentially that the populist movements insofar as they existed in the UK and in Italy are sort of reaching their post-peak? Have they peaked too soon? Or, or, they, or is this just a, actually just a preliminary skirmish in which what's going to likely happen in the UK, for example, is that a rival party to the Tories will come forward, that a more direct, less contradiction-prone conservatism will emerge on the right, and maybe the centrists will just merge with the Lib Dems or with some kind of more centrist Labour Party. Yes, I, I think I would hesitate to call this the, you know, I, 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 to, to, to predict the future, but I'm more inclined to think that Populism is not a a, a a fad that's erupted in the in the two party system, but actually a, a sort of like a tidal movement by which the populists are going to become one pole of the you know of the political system, and let's say the elites of the establishment parties are going to become another, and obviously it'll take different forms according to. The country when you have a, if you have a pure two-party system, it's going to be easiest to it, it'll work easy, most easily if the populists just inhabit one of the parties, which is what's happened to the Republicans and 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 the elites of the Republican Party have just migrated to the other party, and the solution's very simple. 
but I mean it's 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 slightly more complicated in Britain, but not not all that much. No, except except that you know Trump in his years fitfully and not very competently really did try and stop immigration into the United States, even if it was just by emergency measures title for you. He certainly didn't get any substantial legislation to control it. Whereas if you look at Boris in Britain, for example, which was also rooted in immigration, Boris, they put in new immigration plans. They put a, a, a point system in. In other words, they did exactly what the populist right wanted, but they also increased <laughs> immigration levels, just shifted the balance of it away from immigration from Europe towards immigration from the rest of the world. In other words, in other words, they dramatically increased the pace of non-white immigration into the United Kingdom. Now, Boris was always saying that has nothing to do with race. It's completely consistent with what he has always said. He's always been a bit of a liberal. This is where liberalism in the conservative party is very deep. It has a very strong, important seam of it is, is, is liberal. But that also just weirdly contradictory, right? I mean, take back control and let let Britain become even less familiar than it used to be is a, is a, is a strange one. Yes. And uh, also we're going to be free trader, but the first thing we'll do as a free trading country is to get out of a free trade agreement with about 30 of our closest trading partners. That's another slight contradiction going on. Yes. And well, I, you know, I think that there were two things that, uh, so I, I don't think that, that other countries have as much difficulty addressing immigration as Britain does the United States really does have a you know a low imported labor option? Italy you know has a big natural border, and when when Salvini was was blocking migrant boats in 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 2018 and 2019, the government was wildly popular, and the actual the and and migration was down. The, I, I think there are basically two problems in that that Britain faces. One is it really is tied to liberalism just by its by its geographic and natural resource situ, situation it's a it's a natural resource poor um country especially in a time when people don't burn coal and use iron and 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 anyone can send ships around the world and and so it doesn't really have special resource advantages it's it's really crowded and so it has to it has to rely on finance and trade it has to be open to the world and uh, and that means keeping the borders open to labor to a degree and the other problem was the other problem was boris and uh, you've you know who is a guy who had many of the of the makings of of a truly superb prime minister i mean he was a he's a highly intelligent person who's got a, a kind of charm that is perfect for a politician he was able to you know make his sort of canniest craftiest maneuvers look like he was bumbling into them he was able to disarm his opponents he really had a had a gift but there was there was something he was sort of i mean i always find it interesting when you have dominic Cummings, you know, I, I, who is probably one of the greatest, you know, political aide of the of the last several decades. But I mean, Boris had a very, very good aide in Cummings. He threw him away for largely personal reasons, for reasons having to do with 
Boris's wife and her her political ambitions and the whole story was was very kind of 16th century i mean it was you know what i mean <laughs> yes henry the eighth just got rid of cromwell yeah, yeah even though cromwell had basically created the entire possibility of his rule and the rationale yes. behind it and yes. off with his head at some point because Henry VIII, Boris is basically as priapic as Henry VIII was, but with more <laughs> unknown illegitimate children probably wow. than Henry VIII ever got away with. It's sort of like something out of Game of Thrones. But yeah, that's, isn't it like, because th then you, you get this person, this character, this boy, and ultimately not, not serious. That's what's so strange about him. That's right. He ultimately wasn't serious. I don't know. I honestly don't know how you walk into number 10 and not feel serious about what you do. But he, that's right. He had the, all these things that seemed like exaggerations, like, oh, he just wants to play king and things, the things people said. They turned out to, they turned out to be a lot of truth in. There was also, when I went and did, did that piece on him and I, like several years ago, when I just talked to everyone who knew him at college and I, I've gone, I'd left. So I, I'm in touch with a few characters who've over the years, like one of his closest friends is one of my friends back there. And the one thing I was staggered, because from a distance it looked like, oh, that's Boris. He was fun. He was fun at the Oxford Union. He was this character. He was like this Etonian that kind of played it off, didn't, didn't sort of, but lied to everyone all the time about everything. And they all grew to loathe him. Not because he wasn't still charming, but because he had betrayed each of them in some really quite profound way and then treated it unseriously. And that is the and that's the that was his ouster. Yeah. Because the the broad in a broad political sense, you know, this is a very old and rickety majority that the that 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 the Tories have and, and to justify n not going to the country required yeah, something maybe a little more than you were going to get with Liz Truss. I mean, the all of these members of parliament had to put themselves at, in danger to, to do Boris a bad turn, and they were willing to do it. Because I, Boris, at that point, because there were just the last few ridiculous lies that, mm -hmm. that just made him look idiotic. They had to, they had, they went through a long process of constantly saying things in defense of him that they then had to disavow. They, it was like Bill Clinton's cabinet in a way. Once they'd gone out and said he did not have sex with a woman, then once it turns out he did actually, it was just like maneuvering the language as ever. The, the thought that, well, fuck you, you know? I mean, is it really all about you? And ultimately, this is what Paul, history is fascinating because you, you and I have both been watching the emergence of a new right in Europe. And suddenly you get these things happen, COVID and a completely random event that also forced Boris into a position which he never instinctively wanted to be. They, he had to be, and this is, I think, a big, he, he's not the kind of person that wants to stop people going to the pub. He just isn't. I mean, clearly, he didn't stop <laughs> the equivalent of going to the pub <laughs> as yeah. this was going on. So he was put in that position of a statist person, which he was not very comfortable. Yes, um, and 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 and. But I I have to say the the British discussion over whether Boris attended a birthday party during <laughs> lockdown is the is to a non-British person one of the one of the craziest political things that anyone has ever seen that's not the, and 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 you know whenever i bring that up to 
a British person. They said, well, you got to understand the lockdown was very hard with us still. You know, I, I think it's sort of, it particularly, would, anyway. Under for, any other circumstance, Christopher, I, yeah. the idea that Prime Minister is holding piss-ups in number 10 would would were totally on brand, yeah. first of all. Yeah. Secondly, no one would have cared. It'd be kind of fun, better than yeah. bloody Theresa May sitting there having a cup of tea every afternoon at the appointed hour. But no, they were all being stopped going to the pub, so yeah. he was part of it. That was, it was just a very simple thing, the simplest thing to understand. He fucking made us do something he then didn't do. I find that totally persuasive. It's not in the grand scheme of things important, actually, but especially when you see the queen sitting there all by herself for her husband's funeral, and then Boris is having a piss-up back home, piss-up to explain to <laughs> yeah. As in the expression, he's so stupid he couldn't organize a piss-up in a brewery. Yeah. That is, <laughs> that's one of the old English expressions. I think is, uh, ours is the two-car parade, right? He couldn't organize a two-car two <sighs> parade, yeah. I never heard that one. Yeah. There you a... go. The other thing that surprised me about the right is, is actually in Europe is that they didn't like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That there has been, that the, certainly Boris in particular, and Trust too, and now mm -hmm. Maloney, yeah. very ferociously hostile to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and supporting measures that are going to create and are already creating incredible pressures on ordinary people in terms of the cost of living, as well as the inflationary aspects of COVID. Are you surprised by that? Or do you think it's simply a matter of time before yeah. they start adjusting yes. to reality? Simply a matter of time. I, I, you know, I am a little bit surprised at the way this is coming out, especially since there are certain countries in Europe where, the, according to polls, the, the percentage of people who support, you know, sending arms to Ukraine and, 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 and the percentage who oppose it are roughly the same. Italy's one of them. Actually, I think in Italy, I think there's more opposition to sending arms than there is support. France is also has a, a, a number of skeptics on both left and right. And, uh, and Germany has a low level of skepticism, but it also has a, a government that's, that's keeping its participation tightly, tightly controlled. Um, now, as for whether it's surprising that the right isn't sort of taking a more, you know, a, a more, let's say, Russia sympathetic line. Anti-Putin. Yeah, well, so. I mean, you know, yeah, and anti-anti-Putin. One important thing is the most, the most serious, powerful, well-established right-wing government in Europe is Poland's. And, 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 and anti-Russianism is the dominant political passion in Poland, no matter who is in, in power. So there's no, that is, a, that is an unshakable rock in, the, in what is both the, the borderland of this conflict and the, the, for now, until Maloney gets into power and consolidates something, the center of the European right. In Maloney's own party, I'm sure that if you were to poll its individual members, you would you would you would find that they differ from their leader on this one. So, the you know I I, I and think of course that, Poland then in some tension with Hungary for the first time. Yes, Interesting. that's right. So in Hungary has managed to the Hungarian situation is interesting because Hungary has an almost one hundred percent dependence on 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 on. 
on Russian gas. There are only a couple of other European countries where the dependence is that high. And Hungary said, has said, we absolutely must have an out from, from the Russian gas sanctions if we're to vote for them. And uh, the, the European Commission granted that, that, that out. And, and it's not as unusual or outrageous as you would think. First of all, it's very consistent with or, what Orban has always said about, about keeping his economy in, in decent shape. Orban sincerely believes and has told his, his voters that the moment Hungary is, is in, a, in any kind of precarious economic situation, that the European Union will take advantage of that to take the country's sovereignty away. He's totally right. And they know he's totally right, too. Um, you know. But he still wants a lot of money from the EU. Well, he does, but as I, you know, I, I I do believe that that money, those those structural funds, there, you know, you know, there's two types of money now. There's structural funds, and then there's money for the emergency COVID package. I I, I think the structural funds, at least, those in part are really compensation to Eastern European countries or, or Central European countries, as they like to call themselves, for for taking part in the European Union's economy as a labor pool and not as a sort of a complete economy that would have, you know, that would be actually sort of like running multinational car companies and things like that. The, the, the Slovakia, Hungary, Poland have all to some degree accepted a subaltern position in the European economy. And I think that these structural funds can be they claim that these structural funds should be understood as compensation, not as welfare. And I, on the whole, I tend to think they're right. What do they give the EU in return? What do they give in return? Mm-hmm. If that's the they, deal. What they're being compensated for. I mean, mm-hmm. they just they engage in free transactions where they sell their labor to, mm-hmm. to, to Until Western European capitalists. Until just showed up in the UK in very, very, very large yep. numbers to yep. do... To yeah. labor uh, yeah. didn't actually mean to move there permanently right. necessarily, but were basically a bit like Mexican migrants in yeah. the U.S. And it's it's because Poland doesn't really have a, a, a an, an, an economy that can, although it's the most successful country in economy in Eastern Europe, it can't employ its youth at full capacity. And that might be one of the things they're talking about under this head. It's that. We were the latecomers to the economy. The Germany's, the Germany had already built its car companies. You know, when the global economy happened, Germany, you know, allowed its auto workers to retire at the age of fifty-eight on lavish pensions, and we got, you know, the the auto jobs at a lower rate, and and and, and that sort of like puts paid to the hope that that we could say convert our auto companies. There were automobile companies in Poland into, you know, with help into competitors for Mercedes-Benz, you know, and Audi. So it's a, let's just say that's a convoluted way of saying that it's a sort of a non compensation for a non-compete agreement. That's fascinating. So let's gain this out then. The extremely high price of energy in Europe at this moment is not just among countries that are, like Hungary, particularly dependent on Russian oil. It's also crippling for a country like the UK, which has one of the least 
dependencies on Russian oil simply because it's a market and prices go. You pay the, the world price. It, yes, it's a world price. At the same time, it seems as if the Ukraine war is 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 well. It's very hard to tell, isn't it, where it is? But it's definitely not a success for Putin at this point, unless you consider, you know, some occupation of about maybe a little less now than a fifth of the country, certainly not what he anticipated or wanted. It doesn't look as if the West is going to let Ukraine succumb to a large manpower-driven invasion. It doesn't look, at least from what I'm reading, and I can't claim any expertise, the Russian military is that good at doing that anymore anyway. So at some point, we've got to have some kind of agreement. We've got to have some kind of deal, but it, becomes, it seems incredibly hard for Russia to acknowledge that it, it will have to give up any part of what it's already gotten in Ukraine. And it's very hard from the point of view of Ukrainians who've had their country invaded to want anything but liberation, leaving Crimea on the side for the moment, because I do think that's a kind of slightly special case. Yes. Uh, uh, so when does that poop hit that fan <laughs> when does when does the cost for the rest of europe with this massive oil price rise and energy price rise hit the military reality in ukraine and what happens then that's the well you've you've raised a lot of things here but let's just yeah. focus on the the energy and the um and the winter i mean people talk about you know europe's going to spend a cold winter and so you have this picture of, you know, Ian's in their unheated houses, you know, wearing extra sweaters and, you know, like keeping enough gas on hand to boil up tea. And it sounds like you wouldn't wish it on yourself, but it sounds kind of cozy and romantic at the same time, too. <laughs> but I think that when people talk about a cold winter, they're actually being metaphorical. I mean, it means like not having enough gas to, you know, like run, you know, industries and things like that. So it means like a, a grinding down of whole economic sectors. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the worry. And, and, and particularly, you look at, you know, the United States has engaged Europe, not just in a, you know, it's not, it hasn't just rallied them to, 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 to oppose Russia. It's in, engaged them in a multi-front war that also includes China. And uh, it's getting so serious now when we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, excluding anyone except, I think, South Korea, who's sort of like doing business in chips with China from, you know, we're doing secondary, you know, sanctions on them or proposing them at least. You look at how that affects a, a, a country like, like Germany and basically what is Germany's model? I mean, Germany's model used to be you know, to burn its own coal. Now it's to get cheap gas from Russia and to use that energy plus cheap labor from Slovakia and Hungary to build gasoline cars. And, and slightly more important than cars, I would say, is production facilities that can be built in China. So it seems to be to have lost everything. It's lost its it's it's source of energy it's 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 lost it's you know it's 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 lost its top customer it's a i just don't see where the, the you can only take wild guesses as to where the german economy is going to be in you know in 12 or maybe even 6 months time 
Yeah. I do think it's been highly under-covered here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> underrated in the media, exactly the, the scale of the challenge for the Germans, which means to say the core of European economy, to survive massive sanctions against Russia and China simultaneously. Who do they sell to? They're not even selling as many cars to the UK anymore. And on the other hand, they they are aware that when Russia actually just militarily does an old school invasion, there's no way for the rest of Europe to just sit back and let that happen, right? I mean, I guess they did with Crimea. You could follow the realism of Obama who said... Russia is always going to be more interested in Ukraine than we are. Therefore, why would we get into a battle with something where their priorities are so much higher than ours and their capacity to stick at it so much longer than ours? Yes. And yet we've done this and we've, we've gotten ourselves all up in a tizzy about it. And maybe I don't, maybe I don't want to, it's not a tizzy to oppose what seemed to be a very horrible, brutal invasion with lots of war crimes. No, but we shouldn't it. we shouldn't snicker at Obama either. This was this is a, you know, if you think about an interesting exercise, which I might not be competent to carry it out, but is to imagine what would it look like if we won the war on on Ukraine's behalf? Because I think that we are now the major combatant in this war. And what would happen if we won it and and got all the things we claim to want for Ukraine? That is to say, the the, the lost provinces of the Donbass and, and Crimea back. What would that look like? I mean, basically, the whole... You're right to mention Crimea as a special... As well, a special consideration. That's, that's, that's right. That's the thing we, you can offer in return, which is, okay, we will recognize Russia's permanent control over Crimea as long as you give us back the Donbass. But the question then for me is whether any Russian government, leave Putin out of it for a minute, could do that and sustain popular support. I think the one thing that people in the West underestimated and still doesn't fully understand Mm -hmm. is the complexity of the Russian-Ukraine identity. Mm -hmm. It's... It's deep and it's yeah. long and it and it's 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 bitter, but precisely because it's so close. That's right. Uh, it's like English and Irish people, maybe. Yes, I said that to Anne Applebaum. She nearly had a heart attack. But what, 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 what was she upset? Oh, about? I can't yeah. remember now. Yeah, yeah. But she's yes, she she is. She can be quite get quite upset about oh, these matters, which certainly. And there were some people who find Putin to be a source of moral evil, and therefore. This is a grand moral crusade in the way that liberal internationalists understood Saddam Hussein or which they understand the regime in Iran. And so therefore, these practical, pragmatic decisions are irrelevant. We're just in this Mm -hmm. great Manichaean struggle between good and evil, between the democracies and autocracies. That's the new line. That's another that. Well, that's another interesting element of this. But I was uh, it's an interesting element because it overlaps almost perfectly with the way I, I, with with the way President Biden talks about his domestic op- opposition, but that's a that's a different question. He's I just fighting autocracy everywhere, yeah, right? At home well, I, and you know, but I just wanted to say, you know, if the uh, about if there were a Ukrainian victory, what would mm-hmm. uh, I mean? What would that involve for us? I mean, because the problem is that the strategic location of Crimea, which has been because, which is because of its strategic lo- location, been the home of, you know, most of the Russia's advanced firepower, at least naval firepower, for the last 
250 years. And the losing that is not, it's not just losing a base. It's getting a sworn enemy's base inside of what you think of as your country. What would we have to do to garrison that base? Because the United States would, if the United States were to bring about a victory for Ukraine, it could not just leave Ukraine alone. It would be a much bigger commitment than, I mean, because, because of the truth of what Barack Obama said about the proximity to Russia and the, and the, their caring about us and our ultimately not caring about it and our ultimately not. It, it would be, I think it would dwarf our commitment to, to, to Korea, or 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 you, you know. Except, would... let me put this to you as a counter to that, which is that haven't we also in the last six months witnessed the reality of a, a militarily weak Russia? That this, the, the the one thing it seems to have emerged from the last nine months is the sense that this Russia is not a conventional military threat to Europe. It could not invade Poland, even if it wanted to. I mean, it probably does want to, but let's say it's not going to be able to do that against NATO. In fact, NATO has shown itself to be incredibly superior in terms of its technology and, and, and long run, probably Putin's ability to, to rebuild his military technologically is becoming harder and harder. So you could say, no, we don't. We, we, we won. We, we've, we've weakened Russia which was the goal, at least some some people believe it was. We don't have to do that much for Ukraine. And maybe if the final deal is, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll agree to cede Crimea, but in return for giving us back the Donbass and some sort of a commitment to not invade anytime soon, that would be tolerable. Well, the commitment to not invade would be NATO membership. I mean, that would, that would, that would be what would create that what about EU membership as a kind of halfway house? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, it's kind of a halfway house. On the other hand, I like the way certain anti-capitalist radicals think of, of, of the EU, which is as a kind of a, a division of labor with NATO. It's, it's, it's really actually part of, the, it's part of the same civilizational dis defense structure. And that's why the European countries don't pay much money for their defense, because they... They pay the money to to acculturate and economically integrate the new conquests of of, of NATO of Central so, Europe. Yeah, yeah, in Central Europe. But I, you know, there is, you know, I agree with you that 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 you know a lot of this talk that we've heard about, you know, well, if we let you know Russia, you know, take Ukraine, how do we know he's not going to be on this, you know, walking down the Champs Elysees tomorrow? By now, he's yeah, not. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And <laughs> and and it was a rather, you know, small force with which he invaded Kiev. He's got more men there, but I think the key, I think the key thing that is that that has caused this war to play out very differently than other Russian wars, you know. Russia has lost wars before, I mean, in surprising and 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 you know, humiliating ways and 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 but it, it's really won some awesome military victories. And one of the things about Russia is that you know, this war is kind of like earlier Russian wars in that they you know, they started off disorganized. It's taken them a long time to find out where their strengths are. And as they're doing that, they're kind of like losing very valuable, you know, officers and soldiers and wasting equipment and things like that. But but Russia, 
Russians have been able to take a lot of pain in war in in you know over the centuries, and they've always had, you know, a couple of we weapons in a very picturesque way. They've had the, the you know, the Russian winter, but even if an army is not foolish enough to to march to to Moscow. Russia's had these vast demographic resources. And, you know, if you look at the way they did things in World War II when they moved all their industrial production, you know, to where, you know, it would have taken the German armies a year to reach it and, and started bringing in manpower from all over their empire, and it was really decisive. It means that they can, meant that Russia could fight a long war and, and make up for early mistakes. That manpower is the missing element. The, the demographic weakness of Russia is extraordinary. I mean, it's one of the, you know, it is one of the weaker demographic countries in terms of birth rate, in terms of, you know, how many children each family is having. You know, it's one of the weaker countries in Europe, which is the most demographically weak area the world has ever known. And I think this is, I don't think there's ever been a war that's, you know, that's pitted two countries in which the it's almost the norm to have a one-child family. And when you're drafting kids from one-child families, it's not that they don't have, not just that you don't have military replacements, you have a whole cultural cultural factor because every, every time someone dies on the battlefield, it's the extinction of a family. And so this is a very this is the the element of Russia's traditional military strength that's missing. Yeah, probably fatally. But also, it's obviously its broader economy has been pretty hammered, apart from its energy sector, which is actually doing fine. As long as the Chinese keep buying and as long as OPEC keeps being yeah. friendly, which seems likely, yeah. medium term, but I... I can see this leading to some kind of deal in which the Donbass is, is returned in favor of permanent annex, annexation of Crimea. But who knows? Who I knows? Know. Who knows if the Russian political system is as stable as it appears to yeah, be? That's um, a, another question. You'd I, really, the one thing yeah. that struck me, I don't know about you, is that, is that I was really shocked to see Russian TV during the last nine months in which people are outwardly, openly lambasting the leadership. Now, in general, because they're not fighting enough or throwing enough. But yeah. there is certainly much more open dissent yes. in the Russian media about that war than there was, for example, in the US during the Iraq war, which is going even worse from our point of view at this point, nine months in, than, than, the, than, the, than what's happening in, in Ukraine. Well, that's an interesting comparison. I'm not, I, I'm not sure I... You know that would take a kind of a thorough examination I'm just, and systematic. I'm my head. But I, no, no. But I, 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 I agree. I think that there is a lot of dissent from from the war in Russian media. There's a lot of anti-Putin talk, and I don't think you you'd know, see that in China, for example. No, which has far more aggressive totalitarian control of its populace than the Russians do. And 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 the question is: Is this a matter of there being a you know like a freer country than we realize, or there being a less organized? country than we realize. And I just don't know the answer to yeah. that. Well, less organization means more freedom in general. <laughs> I, I mean, that's you, right. You, you, the more incompetent <laughs> yeah. and fucked up your government is, the more freedom you're likely to have. But that does seem to me, from the point of view of the United States, it seems quite seriously obvious to me 
that the main rival, the main problem, the main challenge is China, not Russia. Mm-hmm. And that to go back to my friend John Mearsheimer's point of view, that why would we take on both at once, especially if we think that Russia is essentially what Obama probably foolishly said publicly, is, mm-hmm. is a declining regional power. Yes. And such a power tends to get very sensitive about things like Ukraine, <laughs> that, that, that they can be even more touchy about things that have always been touchy. And therefore, the job is to kind of, I don't know, is to try and, try and keep them calm and not provoke and deal with them in some kind of pragmatic way while you rally resources to confront China. If we, yeah, I, and so the possibility emerges that in fact, we didn't intend to fight a two-front war. We didn't intend to take them on both at the same time. And perhaps we have made a version of the mistake we accuse Putin of having made, which is sort of he didn't expect the resistance that that he found in, in Kiev. And, 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 and once he got bogged down, he was in a, in a kind of a no-win situation. Maybe we went into this business of you know, rallying sanctions as if we would just be able to bring Russia to its knees in, in short order and, and were similarly surprised by the unwillingness of, of China and even more importantly when it comes to oil, India, join us. So I just, one of the things that strikes me that also people have not, because it's in no one's interest to say this, that if you think of Trump's policies towards China, Biden is Trump, but on steroids. Yeah, that's right. That, that Biden has engineered, first of all, Biden's discourse, a general discourse, insofar as one can glean discourse from Joe Biden, is is made in America, two words, made in America. It's wonderful. It's almost almost the perfect Biden quote. (laughs) Two words, made in America. And and now this extraordinary attack upon, I mean, the ability for China to engage with the West in terms of producing chips, by which I don't mean French fries. I mean, and and that's what, what they've just done, again, it should have, I, I don't know why it wasn't front page news because it's a huge, it's basically a declaration of, 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 of electronic war against China. Yeah. I, I mean, it's uh, the United States has, I, I mean, there have been a lot of intelligent military analysts who have been urging this course for a long time, and I'm not a military analyst myself, but it's certainly true that we have elevated the let's just say the, the 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 military perspective on china above the economic perspective and that from a military perspective it's un it's intolerable that china should be allowed to progress on chip that it that it should be able to because that would give it a, a military yes, advantage right, to make its that, way to the next level of technology and hawaii however you pronounce that company was kind of a a, a, a sort of tipping point mm-hmm. in which yeah. the west and britain yeah. for example finally realized, you know, we can't really do this because that means they got everything we got and then we're screwed. It's not just on trade, is it, that, that, that Biden is sort of Trump too, in the sense that on immigration, I just see that he's, he's re-invoked Title 42 again, that he, he, he has, of course, allowed in around maybe we, I, the numbers get 
bewildering because there are arrest numbers and there are people allowed in numbers, but it's between one and two million people have arrived in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think per year, isn't it? Pretty much, I think, at this point. Yeah. I get a little confused sometimes because there are people who are let go and there are people who are yeah. then given I have an ankle not, bracelet or people who... I haven't studied those, those numbers, but I, I certainly would not call Biden a Trump successor in the immigration department. I, I wouldn't either in that broader sense, but in the narrow sense that he seems to appreciate that it's a problem, that he seems to appreciate you might have to invoke COVID rules to kind of keep a hold of this, that the idea that remain in Mexico, for example, is intolerable when you actually face the reality of dealing with millions and millions of people arriving into your country? You know, a, 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 an old colleague of ours whom I was talking to at, at lunch the other day said, who complained about Biden from a Biden-sympathetic point of view, saying he he's never been able to think more than one chess move ahead. It, that, that, that he's always, this is the, you know, maybe it's a good side to Biden in certain contexts, but it's a bad side in terms of strategic thinking. He's just looking at what's on his plate this morning. And I, and so I would say, you know, I, is that an immigration policy or is it just what he's saying two weeks before an election that's going a little bit yeah. worse for him and on which immigration is polling as one of the one of the big issues? I don't I don't think this is the I don't think it's the core of his immigration policy. He's run a very lax immigration yeah. policy in, in general. I, I know. I've been lashing him for it. But at the same time, I don't think he's made mass immigration popular. I don't think he's been able to really counter the the it's not anti-immigration; it's anti-illegal mass migration, which which is a totally different thing. Um, but how do you see the right shaking out? Because for me, in America, for me, you know, I understand a conservatism that is more of conservative of, of the home, as it were, protection of families, curtailment of some trade if it's going to deeply disrupt, some control of immigration to to sustain the continuity and identity of a country. I can see all those things. And then I, I look and I see it's still essentially a party devoted to one man, which is Trump. Am I wrong about this? I mean, I, I follow, I've been following DeSantis, trying to figure him out for, for quite a while. And even if we want to take the most successful uh, interpretation of, of his career, which I think has been, he's, he's definitely made a name for himself among Republican governors in a way that best suits him to be Trump's inheritor. And yet, it seems at the center of this, as always, we have this character, this person who's, who's simply impossible to handle, who, who's simply, I don't think it's because he's, I used to call it instinctually tyrannical. Now, let's take this absurd question of the documents that he took with him from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. Now, what the hell is that about? It, it seems at some level, these are mine. As dumb as that, that's all. And then resistance because, and so he gets himself into this impossible legal situation where he's clearly, clearly, I think, without any question, violated a whole bunch of laws, 
which actually matter in terms of national security. Certainly from his point of view, having gone on about Hillary's emails, to have top secret documents lying around in public in Mar-a-Lago where anybody can walk in and out apparently, seems to be grotesque. So how do you solve the problem of Trump? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I am not sure that, that Trump's position hasn't eroded in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, on the question of the documents, the, 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 I, I don't know what's known about it. I'm not really studying it super carefully. I, I noticed in, in the, the, the Maggie Haberman book on Trump, the biography on Trump, which is very interesting in a, in, in, in a lot of ways, there seemed to be, there was an account of an interview that she did with him in which he got very sensitive about his letters from Kim Jong and almost led me to believe that that's the, that that's the thing. But, <laughs> but I, I think, I do think in that case, you know, Obviously, you can you can you can charge an ex-president with a crime if he's you know committed a crime. But when the Justice Department of one president raids the home of his political rival, I think that that the public is owed a somewhat fuller account of what is being alleged. I don't think that you know I, I you, you know. I don't think well, trust I think us. The, the, you know the possible exposure no. of incredibly important national security secrets has been pretty fully acknowledged out there. Obviously, you can't really tell everyone exactly what we've lost because that a, would defeat that, the entire purpose. That's but, right. That's no, right. I think, it's, I think any other person, you'd be like, what the hell is going on? And there would probably be some reasonable explanation for someone else. Yeah, I think As there was yeah. some kind of explanation for Hillary's email service, even if it was just about her. her but it's, it's his inability to engage in any non-zero something to take the defensive position constantly, even if it's harming him. And this may be, of course, why he doesn't become president again. Yeah, but- I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, now, when you talk about solving the, the, the problem of to- Donald Trump, I thought you were talking about as a political matter, not about changing his personality. No, no I mean as a political <laughs> yeah, matter. Yeah. I mean, there's I mean, no changing I, this man. No, point, I, obviously. I, I think, you know... If you look at the the, the polls on, on on the January sixth hearings, they seem to have moved the public not a jot. I mean, they're, 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 the 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 polls are exactly where they were before the the hearings on questions like, was January sixth the riot? Was Joe Biden legitimately elected president? And blah blah blah. So. That's an indication that 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 attitudes aren't changing. There are a couple of things that are changing. I think that that Republicans have grown impatient with with Trump's failures as a party leader. I mean, now it looks like the um, now it, the you know as we speak, as we make this broadcast, we're we're you know we're just before the elections, and it looks like Republican prospects for November are improving, but. A number of their candidates were appear to have been quite poorly chosen, and and um, <laughs> and those who were and those who were. I like that were... Herschel Walker guy. He did okay, he great right. in football. Yeah, let's all put right. him in yeah, there. Yeah. That's basically the entire well, subtle rationale behind the candidacy of Herschel Walker, which came directly from Trump's mouth, and that was it. Well, so what I'm saying is, I think that 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 Trump's role as a as a party organizer is sort of. Is 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 a, certainly a problem for 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 political professionals, but maybe also for 
maybe also for 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 voters who follow the for, follow the party closely. You know, but there's no one that if he run, if he runs, I I can't see anyone in the Republican Party defeating him. Well, the other thing that has happened is the the emergence of DeSantis, and and if Trump's competence as a party leader have has been a, has become a problem, then DeSantis is an obvious alternative to him. There are a couple of problems with DeSantis that I think that 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 anyone would acknowledge. And, and one is, he's a man of unproven charisma. And the, <laughs> and, and the other one is that th there's a dynamic in these primaries where if there's any, if there is a second alternative to Trump, they will, they'll split the They'll split the vote, and uh, and it doesn't matter how good any of them are. And we've seen that again and again and again. We saw it with the, that was the logic in the the Romney primary in 2012. It was the logic in the Hillary primary in 2016. It it was a logic that the that the Democrats managed to diffuse in a rather impressively organized way in 2020, where you had a lot of candidates that were vying for the same ideological space, like Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, and Joe Biden. And what the Democrats were able to do was to pull the three non-Biden Bidens out of the race so that it became Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who were splitting the vote. But I believe that if you took the Sanders-Warren vote for most of the first primaries, they were above the Biden and Biden, so th this this is the this is the dynamic. I don't know how it will play out. Maybe the the elections will give us a clue. You mean, yeah. <clears throat> well, certainly, how DeSantis does in Florida might have some impact on that. What about the questions, the cultural questions, which are back, as it were? From my perspective, and we've disagreed about this for many years. I did not. Well, some of this, <laughs> yeah. we disagreed about marriage equality, and I'm kind of fascinated by its return as a, as a question for Republicans. It seemed, seemed to be something that Orban was very... I, I don't really see, practically speaking, how you undo something that is 70% public support. But I think what you have seen, from my perspective, is, is, is an aggressive mood by the social justice left to truly get into the educational process to get children very young to understand the core concepts of critical theory, which is that what you see is not what is true, that what is true is actually a significant hidden story that we will reveal to you, you children, there are no, there are no two sexes, there are many different ones and you can pick. Or that, in fact, you think you live in a free society. You don't. You live in a slaveocracy, which is rigged to make sure that non-white. Now, this is now being taught simply as fact mm -hmm. to children through the public school. This is what happens when essentially elites become captive of a particular kind of ideology that is quite alien to most ordinary people. And what, I, what terrifies me is that, is that increasingly there are no elites no no one within the elites to resist this at all. In other words, to actually stand up for what most regular normies kind of feel. And so you, you end up with this war that's going to go on, which is, which without 
a significant number of the elite actually understanding and getting where most people are coming from is 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 really going to destroy liberal democracy is destroying liberal democracy in in so when i say liberal democracy i mean in the to and fro of two reasonable parties throwing back ideas moving us asymptotically forward in some kind of rational deliberative way yeah i well you know and a significant the, the you know i i devote some time to this question in 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 my last book and i i think the problem is the reason you don't have elites who are willing to speak up against this is because the the politically correct or woke or or critical theory side does have the law on their side basically you know civil rights law which is assumed to protect minorities against majorities you know it it enters our political system in a kind of a balanced way because a minority is a minority you assume he's got less power than a than a majority but over time you get a lot of you get a lot of laws get added that 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 stiffen the penalties against people who do wrong under these laws you get the addition of women which is absolutely critical because now you get the addition of a majority that can lay claim to minority status and and suddenly this is a votable proposition but i think the crucial thing is that 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 you change the rules for what constitutes a crime against minorities and 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 i would cite the sort of like the admission of like of of what you call it hostile environment which judges have had a very hard time to time limiting okay so hostile environment can be you know like a boss who might not say anything sexist to his female employees but you know hangs a nudie poster behind his his desk and in the same way you know is it a hostile environment if he says well you know i sure hope the you know the guy who opposes the equal rights amendment you know wins in the next election and eventually you get you get employers and 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 you get people in all walks of elite life who are really afraid that if anyone says things like this that they're like a danger to the organization with which they're involved like sort of like you know i i like you joe but we just can't have a you know a teacher walking around saying well at the end of the day you know blacks gays and women are treated pretty well in the united states and so or more the, or more, more often and actually quite common at this point a member of a of a business or a group that privately says, even on Twitter says, well, that's not private, but that there are only two sexes. That in itself is not just a contestable, interesting debate, mm -hmm. maybe, yeah. but it's it could set your entire company up for yeah. prosecution. It certainly can set you up for quite potent social media campaigns against you. Boycotts, yes. Boycotts and the like. Is this just accountability, though? Is this just the society moving? Like, for example, when you mentioned the example of the nudie photo behind, I, I honestly find that unacceptable in a professional workplace. I don't. I. 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 I mean, it, yeah. wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't in. want. I. You know, I would. I, I would consider it eccentric if I were a young man, and I would consider it unacceptable if you know a daughter of mine were working in a, in right. a place on like that. On the other that. hand, let's say the boss mentions that he likes listening to Joe Rogan. 
yeah. then you're in a whole other world, right? But you know, the but the 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 point is, you and I sit around talking about this. I think in any American society that's ever existed, I think we would have an we would reach a general agreement in almost any room that the guy who is hanging the nudie f poster in his office full of female employees is a creep, and you wouldn't want to work for him. So that guy's going to be like one guy running one company in a really in, in, in a nation of, you know, 330 or 40 million people. But the harm, yeah, yeah. the harm he's doing every day in well, sustaining patriarchal values is a harm we cannot ignore. In other words, that's the yes, other thing that's entered that's right. is, the, is, is, is the language of therapy, which is that, for example, I would love to have and have been having a lively debate about what is appropriate to do with children who show up and say, I think I'm a girl when they're actually a boy and vice versa. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? But the the actual airing of that debate is now regarded as a matter of harm that has to be prevented because just debating it negates the quote-unquote existence of such people. I mean, that is where the rhetoric lies. And in fact, there is quite a serious argument, for example, from trans activists that the media itself should be should forbid itself from airing both sides of the debate. And if you look at the proper media, the woke media, John Stewart or John Oliver, for example, don't raise the debate at all. Just simply assert that the opponents are evil and this is why they're evil and let's also make fun of them at the same time. Yeah. Well you know, you know, I, I don't I know what to say. Heard, okay, but well, I, I I don't know. I, and again I wonder if I'm just generationally out of it because I, you know, during the 80s and 90s, when I was debating gays, I would I would walk into rooms where the attitude towards me would be extraordinarily, not necessarily personally hostile, but mm -hmm. pretty, pretty rough. Uh -huh. You know, you go into fundamentalist churches and be told essentially yeah. you're going yeah. to hell. And I'd be like, yeah, bring it on. Let's go. Well, why am I going <laughs> I to hell? What are you? Yeah. I, I, I because I came from a worldview that was just like, let's fight it. Let's talk it out. Yeah. Well, I think that England is a more argumentative and debate-oriented society is, than there's of... no Hyde Park corner in, in, in America or, you know, there's no Oxford Union at any uni American university. But I, I think it also had to do with, with the time and the law. And uh, people are going to have to, you know, obviously they're going to have to stand up and speak a little more firmly for what they what they believe in, but they're also going to need to be protected from, you know, lawsuits. And I, I wouldn't say protected from organized harassment, but they're going to be, they're, you know, let's just say a corporate board is going to need some way of being reassured that, that, you know, if they tolerate someone with a slightly different opinion, it's not going to, they're not going to be putting billions of dollars of the company's money at risk. Yeah. We're of the same generation. And I think you're a little younger than I am. Let's yeah. let's let's yeah. gloss yeah. over that. That's right. But I remember you when we were in our very early 20s. Yes. Um, absolutely. So it's been an interesting life. For me when I look at America, mm -hmm. the one huge change it seems to me has been in religion. That I've genuinely seen, definitely seen a, a marked decline in the the American exception that we always understood that however far modernity progressed, religion would still 
be around and would still have vitality because America proves it. Well, 21st century, not so much. And insofar as you do see a lot of religion, it tends to be rather politicized religion. It tends to be seemingly arranged around issues that are relatively peripheral to central Christian understanding of what you do with the world. How do you look at that? I mean, you, you, where, what is your religious background? How do, how do you respond to the role of religion in politics in, in, in the last 50 years? Or so? Yeah. You know, my religious background, I was, you know, brought up, you know, by my, my grandparents are of, of four different religions. I was brought up an Irish Catholic, and uh, which I remain, you know. But uh, get along, Christopher. The what? That's why we get along. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I think, you know, America, I think it's easy to exaggerate how religious America is. You know, there was a very strong strain of French style enlightenment thinking in the in the founding fathers, which a lot of people go to great exertions to deny. But the but, argument is that that allowed for its opposite. Yes. Way, and, and right, that there's the Tocquevillian idea that because it's not, because we don't have a the theocracy, people sort of like find themselves and find their, their well, they, 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 they fulfill their idea of what, of, of the good life in, in their religion. And so, but, you know, I think Robert Putnam in the 90s or, well, no, it wasn't more recently than that. It was about 10 or 15 years ago. First said, you know, the this religious revival that people talk about in the United States, it's measurable and it's over. It really was something that started around 1970 and ended around 90. And, it, and it's been declining pretty steadily. And so... It's you also know, the case, is it not, that when we look back in history, we tend to forget that the periods... 19th century America were also had plenty early 19th century America were, 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 then you had these great awakenings and yeah but you also and, had a bunch of, of, of secular sentiment everywhere as that's well. right that's and, right and the 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 nature of church going religion has has come has waxed and waned yes I look at the most historically and resiliently religious countries like Ireland and Spain well, and see them having undergone a sort of complete Yes. Well, uh, I was going to say Ireland, I think, was one of the exceptions to this, this, this pendular thing. And I think that with the, you know, events of the last 10 or 20 years, anti-clericalism has become an identity and, and in Ireland. And I'd, I'd say that Ireland has become, in a strange way, perhaps the premier anti-clerical country in the world. I mean, this is one of the rare countries where you've got both gay marriage and divorce by referendum. I'm sorry, gay marriage and abortion by, by referendum. By big so, majorities. Yes. So, But that maybe that's a sign that, in fact, it's a, a relatively healthy response to a position in which clericalism itself had far too big an influence on politics. And obviously, over the years with its power, was, was capable of extraordinary abuse of that power. America, less of that bipolar kind of that, well, bipolar is wrong, but, but that sort of Manichaean idea that you're either suppressed by religion or liberated from it is still different than, than other Western countries. But yeah. I worry that what Charles Taylor called the social imaginary, the way in which we conceive the world, has moved from one which, even though we didn't really understand it, 
the individual, the individual conscience, the rights of the individual, which are kind of rooted in the sense of the inviolability of the individual, which is pretty central to Christianity and not central to many other traditions, that once that attenuates, the the possibility that the actually what's inviolable is the group, what's inviolable are many other entities that we can speak to that are in in strong revival, partly over the the the, the grave of a vibrant Christianity. Mm, that's a an interesting thought. <laughs> well, we'll leave, we'll leave it at that, Christopher. I, it's been it's been huge fun. Thanks for coming coming in. It's We've always fun, Andrew. That's great. widely. I really recommend to our listeners to pay attention to Christopher. He does write for the New York Times occasionally. I think they've let you in as some kind of token. But your essays in Compact, it's a recently wonderful essay on Maloney in Compact, and in the Claremont Review of Books, and in other... Where else are you, are you publishing now? Oh, different places. Any, any you, place that'll you, have You're me. really not... You, you still are an ind independent character. I mean, you've not pursued a traditional media career in the sense that someone like I did. But yet you're here producing some of the most interesting stuff around in a very quirky w way. Well, maybe I'm. Yeah. Well, that's very. That's very kind. I'll take that as a compliment. Or you know. Uh, but I'm also. I'm also just. This is personal. But I. It has given me enormous pleasure in seeing you thrive in this way because, I mean, you had lots of issues going on in earlier in your life yeah and but you were always brilliant and it was always like well one day we're going to christopher is going to really change our rock our world and finally you are rocking our world and i'm just i'm just as someone who is desperate for interesting and fresh thinking i'm, I'm really grateful for, for what you're doing well you're very kind old friend and I, I i feel the same way about you so um thank you well in that smug self-congratulation we will say goodbye we have plenty of interesting material coming up which escapes me at the moment <laughs> who do we have next who's next oh we have farid farid coming on farid zakaria and Catherine schultz so a variety of topics and we look forward if you enjoyed this if you like these kind of things if you like the fact we don't have ads please subscribe we need your support all independent media needs your support and and we're really grateful for it with that we'll see you next week have a great one